Today's episode of The Byword is an absolute scream. While the big talk welcomes back the spooktacular Drew Edwards, Nerd Nightmare heads to the placid little town of Woodsboro. Get your popcorn ready. Welcome to a quintessentially October episode of the Nerd by Word, the only podcast that goes outside of their comfort zone to tackle their greatest fears in the name of friendship, fandom, and download numbers. Today's Byword Big Talk welcomes returning guest Drew Edwards, writer and creator of Halloween Man and Lucy Chaplin's Science Starlet. There is a content warning for that segment if you are an insecure male listener whose very existence is placed into jeopardy simply by strong female characters op- occupying the same spaces, then you clearly lack basic comprehension skills and have been listening to the wrong podcast for a very long time. All jokes aside, it was great catching up with Drew and his exciting new endeavors, but first, it's time to keep you brief on the biggest news in nerddom with... Dave, this was going to be my selection for this week, so I'm glad um, to see you find it poignant as well. Not just poignant, but also uh, I think it harkens back to something that we've talked about several times uh, in the last few months on this pod. So uh, it it kind of bears digging back into. Uh, So Deadline is reporting that uh, James Earl Jones has basically retired from the role of voicing Darth Vader in the Star Wars franchise. Uh, This shouldn't be a a horrible shock, all things considered. Uh, The man has been doing the job for like 40 years at this point, um, and he is 91. So it seems like it might be time for him to start slowly stepping back a little bit. Um, I know that he's been still pretty busy. Most recently, I think he appeared in uh, Coming to America, the sequel to Coming to America without a number in it. uh, as uh, the uh, king and father of Eddie Murphy's character. Um, but that's not the most interesting thing of the story. Although, you know, let's go ahead and just be honest. James Earl Jones is, you know, an absolutely iconic actor. And, you know, realizing that he is not going to be uh, not just, you know, voicing Darth Vader anymore, but is likely, you know, taking a step back from from acting slowly in general is it's really the end of an era in a lot of ways. I mean, he's he's just an absolutely class act and and, a, and just a fantastic actor. Um, but what is also really, really interesting is according to Vanity Fair, that uh, Jones has uh, basically signed over the rights to his voice to filmmakers using AI technology to make sure that Lucasfilm um, would be able to keep Darth Vader's character alive. Um, According to um, Matthew Wood, uh, he had mentioned, uh, he, Jones, he was looking into winding down this particular character, so how do we move forward? And that forward momentum, of course, seems to be that any uh, future appearances of Darth Vader will be... um, you know, electronically generated, uh, very similar to what they did to sort of de-age Mark Hamill's voice for Book of Boba Fett, which is not actually a de-aging. It's not 
from my understanding that Hamill recorded new lines. It is that basically they have this um, sort of uh, elaborate AI system and they feed that AI system all sorts of lines that were previously recorded in sort of the voice that they're aiming for. And then this AI spits out new lines. Um, and that's essentially what they're going to be doing with uh, James Earl Jones. Um, interestingly enough, there's been a lot of kind of back and forth with, um, you know, sort of contradictory reporting about how exactly Darth Vader was voiced in um, Obi-Wan Kenobi, uh, with some people pointing towards this AI technology likely having been used already on Obi-Wan Kenobi. And with, you know, Vader's voice, you know, James Earl Jones's voice kind of going through like this filter to make it sound a little, you know, electronic and everything. It's a natural uh, voice to do something like this with because it's much, much harder to to see the, the sort of the, the rough edges or hear the rough edges rather um, in the technology, which, you know, was a little more difficult, I think, with, with Luke Skywalker because that voice was a little stilted, I guess is the, is, is the best word to use. Um, a little, um, not electronic sounding, but p- perhaps a bit emotionless um, might be a good way to put it. Um, so on the one hand, you know, sad uh, because Jones is retiring from the role. On the other hand, troubling a little bit that we're once again going down the AI computer generated rabbit hole uh, and that this character and Jones's voice are going to be kept alive, uh, you know, even beyond his passing. Um, and then on the other hand, better again. See, I have three hands today. On the other hand, better again, because, you know, at least in this particular case, they have the permission of the actor to do this, uh, which is perhaps a little different from, let's say, what they did with our friend Grant Moff Tarkin in Rogue One. Um, obviously, there's no way for, for Peter Cushing to have signed over his his voice and likeness for CGI-generated uh, return from the grave if that technology didn't exist yet by the time he passed. But still, it, it, it's, it's at least a little more comfortable. It's just a lot of conflicted feelings here, Chris. What are your thoughts? Is that third hand um, an artificial replacement, uh, a prosthetic, a robotic hand? Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, <laughs> deep, I'm deeply conflicted by this. Um, at, at first... I, see, I didn't see the second part of that. Um, I just saw the headline and before researching it further. So I just saw this as, you know, giving James Earl Jones as, you know, for all intents and purposes, the voice of our childhood. Not not only as Darth Vader, but also as Mufasa. Like that was one of the most formative, you know, films of my youth as The Lion King. And, um, you know, to see him hang it up, you know, it, it just really made me super reflective and then my next initial thought was like, okay, this is awesome because he's clearly the only Darth Vader voice that we'll ever have and never should have. And so maybe we can move on to something new, but leave it to Star Wars <laughs> to prove me wrong. Um, so beholden to past characters, um, you know, as excited as I as I am for something like Ahsoka, which is getting the band back together from Star Wars Rebels, one of the most it's it's ironic that it takes the same place uh, it takes place in the same time as like the rebellion and and the original trilogy because it still feels like it was the most forward momentum with new characters and new storylines and so seeing ahsoka you know dive back into that is really really exciting but for the 
vast majority of the Star Wars universe, we are still circling the drain of yesteryear. And it's deeply troubling because I want to be a bigger Star Wars fan than I am. But it's like, can we can we move forward? It's just the same old, same old. And we are so deathly afraid of recasting. And I'm in no way, shape, or form want this to be misunderstood as, as recasting the, the voice of Darth Vader. But like, how much more do we need from this Skywalker saga? Can we please move on? Uh, Andor uh, premiered this week as the time of recording. And the first two episodes were... Um, you know, a lot of groundwork, and that's probably why they released all three um, to begin with. But that third episode, man, that really packed a punch. And so I'm really excited to see new stories. And, uh, you know, Diego Luna is already saying, like, this is it. This is the last time I'm playing the character. This is done. And I think we shouldn't be so afraid of, you know, having complete stories and then moving on to something else. And even within the Star Wars universe, I think that's absolutely valid. You know, we have our Skywalker saga. Let's move beyond that. Let's do something different. You know, um, uh, you know, we've we've talked about that. You know, quite a bit. The Star Wars universe, for a lack of better term, that's you know, has sprung forth from uh, George Lucas's original movie. Is that thing which is which is solely contained on three planets? <laughs> yeah, is there there is a, a potential there and. A, partially because of exactly that you know the the scope i think of what uh lucas did was never quite as as big as he could have gone i mean the the universe is is very very interesting i guess uh in that you have a few planets that keep popping up like tatooine um and every planet apparently only has one ecosystem like there's an ice planet there's a desert planet there's a lava planet you know but even within that i think there's just so much opportunity um, to tell stories within the Star Wars universe that have not been told before. But because we are so beholden to the past and nostalgia, that is just not something that is really happening. And look, uh, there are things that make Star Wars quintessentially Star Wars, and I don't want those things to be completely abandoned. Um, and I would go so far as to say that the stuff that they put out that takes place during the reign of the Empire feels more like star wars than anything else i think there's a reason that that rogue one for example worked so well and why we're sitting here now with an Andor series i think there is something quintessentially star wars about having an underdog situation and maybe that is one of the things that resonated a lot less with the with the disney produced sequel trilogy is that they were trying to recreate this underdog feeling and yet at the same time you know Leia was basically a general in the New Republic. Like it's if you're the go- if you're the governing you know body, it doesn't it doesn't feel like you're the underdog against this first order, right? So I think there's something quintessentially like you know bad government underdogs fighting against it that that's very very Star Wars. Um, and so those kinds of stories can still be told even if you move you know beyond the Skywalker saga. You can talk about the you know, planetary government. You can focus on a particular sector. I mean, there's all sorts of things you can do to tell these. Star Wars underdog stories. Those are the best, the ones that work best. This is why the original trilogy, I think, in a lot of ways, is is still superior to a lot of the other stuff that's been put out. It's just the underdog stories. That's why, like, I think Rebels, from what I've seen, better than the Clone Wars. It's it's that underdog feeling. It's it's very Star Wars. And why I'm looking forward to watching Andor, which I have not done yet, but you know that time period lends itself to that kind of storytelling very well. 
And I think I don't I don't want to put too much of the cart before the horse because I want to give it its full fledged nerd commendation when we when we head to November. But to use like a, an analogy from like the music world is what I appreciate about Andor and Rogue One and stories like that and Rebels is like they're like that indie band that you kind of see live and like you latch onto, and they have this indefinable like similarity to other bands that you love and you just like love to watch them rise but then you have you know something like the sequel trilogy which is just like a bad cover band like it's 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 the same old same old and it's not nothing any original you're just playing the hits but it's not even the original people playing it so uh, it, it's and then you have like the de-aged mark hamill is just like the rolling stones on their 58th farewell tour it's just like we don't we, we don't need that so yeah um i can't wait for you to watch andor and talk about it in a few weeks oh yeah i think it's also interesting that um the expanded universe ha 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 yes i know i'm an expanded universe guy um they they felt that as well uh you know the idea that maybe it's just the same old same old and they did some interesting things um initially first with saying okay the empire has fallen but there's this imperial remnant and now they're you know the underdogs and they are the ones that are using these tactics against the rightful government and what's that like you know and that was interesting and even then they were like okay if we're going to keep doing star wars then what else can we do okay let's do an invasion from like this uncharted space of this species that we've never encountered before and what does that look like you know so they they did try in the expanded universe at least as they push these characters forward you know luke Han, leia they at least you know try to change the the star warsy scenario you know um, I, I sometimes wish they would try something like that now, you know, like just try a different scenario within that world. But it is what it is. But I th- that brings us, I think, just full circle back to just saying, you know, James Earl Jones, thank you for 40 years of Darth Vader. Um, you know, you, your your actual voice, not computer generated, will will be, you know, very, very much missed. All right, Chris, what is your news story this week? What have you got? Well, I learned a lot of pronunciational things. Um, first and foremost, the name of this event is To Doom. Um, so Netflix, I, I, apparently I missed this last year, but Netflix has its own DC fandom type event. Um, where Which we- is hilarious considering DC doesn't have fandom anymore. Right. <laughs> so um, they revealed a lot of news and trailers and first looks and all of this stuff. Um, so I'm going to give you the quick hits here. Um, Enola Holmes 2 got a new trailer, which if you didn't watch the first film, I highly recommend it. I don't know if it's a nerd commendation. I think Sherlock Holmes is nerdy. Um, maybe we'll come back and revisit that later on. But um Henry Cavill as Sherlock Holmes was so cool to see. Just so cool. And um, looks like they're going to be teaming up again here with Millie Bobby Brown and Henry Cavill. Um, super exciting. In the very meh department, uh, Gal Gadot is in a spy thriller called Heart of Stone. That's coming sometime in 2023. I neglected to mention that Enola Holmes 2 is streaming on November the 4th of this year. Uh, Bridgerton gets a spinoff. You know, do your thing. Um, we got more clips, um, and footage from, uh, the Jenna Ortega, Tim Burton collab, uh, Wednesday, the Adams family spinoff, um, that's going to arrive on Netflix, November the 23rd. And 
we got some Guillermo del Toro being Guillermo del Toro with uh, his Pinocchio take. Um, this is fresh off the heels of the Disney Plus uh, live action remake uh, that is going to start streaming December the 9th. Um, Jennifer Lopez is an assassin because, okay, uh, that'll come in May 2023. Um, the one that Dave and I are both are dying to see um, coming in November, The Witcher Blood Origin, starring uh, the central deity in my universe, Michelle Yeoh, as an elf, because that's freaking awesome. Um, we didn't get any extended footage. We've only had one trailer that was a teaser last year uh, around December. So we're still coasting on vibes and anticipation for that. Um, they clone Tyrone with Jamie Foxx, John Boyega, and Tiana Paris. Looks absolutely hilarious. And it reminds me that I need to check out Day Shift because it looks super funny. Um, another big one that you and I will love, Dave, season three of The Witcher is coming summer 2023. Didn't get any footage, but we're headed there. Um, let's see. Glass Onion is coming out in December. We got some more footage for that. That's the Knives Out sequel from Ryan Johnson. Looks amazing. Um, Hellbound. Don't know what that is, but it's coming back for season two. So lots to love here. Uh, Dave, what are you most excited for? Uh, yeah, so you're probably going to be shocked. Would you like to venture a guess what, I'd be, what I would be most excited uh, for? That would be The Witcher. Nope. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm psyched that there's you know season three of The Witcher coming, and I'm psyched that there's a, a movie in that universe featuring Michelle Yeoh. I've, I've, I think she's amazing, but dude, the most exciting thing is still Toro's Pinocchio. Have you looked at any behind the scenes footage that's been released to that? No, it is stop motion animation. It is not CGI. It is stop motion animation they went old school they built the sets they built the figures and it is stop motion animation and i am a huge nerd for stop motion animation going all the way back to my very first encounter with stop motion when i saw uh, the original clash of the titans back in the day um ray harryhausen you know animating uh, skeletons as special effects to have a sword fight with real people it just blew my mind i love uh, stop motion animation i love I love it, especially for quote unquote, like animated films, you know, the idea that it's not a special effect that is interacting with, you know, real human beings. There is just something weighty about it, I guess it's the best. It has, it has a weight. It has a, a physical presence. There's a physicality to stop motion animation um, that, you know, even hand-drawn animation or, or CG animation don't quite capture, you know? Um, and I, I really, really, really like stop motion. And so seeing just, the other day, like at the time of this recording yesterday, I, I saw some behind the scenes footage and I was like, holy crap. You know, I heard that Del Toro was working on a Pinocchio and I'm a big Del Toro fan to begin with, but that, that they're using stop motion animation absolutely blew my mind. So I am incredibly excited to see stop motion Pinocchio animation. Like I'm not even that big of a Pinocchio fan, but just because this is stop motion animation and Del Toro is involved, you know, I'm all over this man. So yeah, the Witcher stuff is is you know fairly exciting, but 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 man, Pinocchio stop motion animation will dealt with Del Toro is just what a combination! I'm all over that. It's like it was tailor made for me. I should have known. That was a lapse in judgment on my part that you would love the weird stuff. And I mean, I and I mean that endearingly because I'm I've, I've seen. I, I'll say this, Del Toro. I respect the hustle. Um. 
but maybe I'll feel differently. I remember my my um, college Spanish classes were obsessed with Pan's Labyrinth, and uh, it weirded the crap out of me. Maybe I'll feel differently if I revisit it. It's hilarious that you mentioned that. I think a lot of that has to do with your um, aversion to scary stuff, which we are still trying to cure. But um, Pan's Labyrinth just was one of those movies that absolutely blew me away when I first saw it. Um, it just, you know, there again, too, you know, the the creature effects, all that, you know, the, the makeup, the, the physical presence of it, the, the melancholy um, the fact that you're not quite sure how much of what is happening is real or or is happening in this little girl's imagination, there is just there's so much there. Um, it's very it's a very sad film, but at the same time, it is it's it's sumptuous. It's it's a visual feast, and it's a it's just a beautiful piece of storytelling. It's it probably in my top ten favorite movies of all time. I absolutely adored Pan's Labyrinth. I think that might have been you know as the optimistic person as i try to be i think it was just left me sad i think that's probably the lasting effect of it yeah and i and i think that is definitely something he was going for with that movie and it's definitely not a movie i would uh revisit all the time uh you know exactly for that you know i'm a, I'm a big feels guy when when i watch you know a movie or something and it resonates with me or i read a book um and you know characters are going through something that i i feel i have big feelings afterwards so um so it's not something that i revisit frequently but when i when i find myself in the right headspace for it i love putting on pan's labyrinth it's it's just so fantastic so yeah i'm I'm a big del toro fan i liked his hellboy movies as well um and i'm really sad that he never got to finish his trilogy there either and they decided to to reboot to not very successful effect there either um and i honestly think and this might be a sacrilege. Um, you know, I'm not the biggest Lord of the Rings fan, but I have watched the movies and I did watch the Hobbit movies as well. And Del Toro was initially the guy working on the Hobbit movies. It was supposed to be two movies and he was doing like all the, the pre-production stuff and everything. And then he kind of walked away from it. Um, and, and Peter Jackson jumped back in and made the movies. And I still, I still imagine what it would have been like to have a Del Toro directed you know, two Hobbit movies rather than three, you know, that stretching is just awful. Um, so I, I'm a big Del Toro fan. And I think, you know, e- even his misfires are at least interesting. So I'm, I'm a big fan. And so I'm, I'm all about this Pinocchio thing, man. I would, I would have loved to have seen that. I had no idea. Um, and I said this on, on social media the other day is like a lot of people are criticizing the rings of power for being slow moving. I'm like, have you read Tolkien? Have you have you read the Lord of the Rings? Um, but I think what, 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 what we need right now is a musical interlude featuring Tom Bombadil, and then everybody's going to be good, right? Like that's what we need. Listen, <laughs> what I what I truly love, and I appreciate Peter Jackson and his vision and bringing it back to the forefront. In the last twenty years, Lord of the Rings has been right at the forefront of fandom, you know, and a lot of that is due to Peter Jackson and his films. Um, at the same time, he had a chokehold on that IP. And I think what what made those films, the, the, it's particularly The Hobbit, because I think the original trilogy of The Lord of the Rings was, was good, was, was great. Um, but it sometimes can take you out because he leans into the pageantry of it all. And it's, yes. you know, it does not feel as approachable. And what I love about the Rings of Power is it cuts through all of that and it still 
has like the, the the splendor of everything, but you can immediately identify with some of these characters. And it's it's I think it's a much updated 2022 take on Tolkien, which is great. Um, and you immediately are in love with so many of these characters and you are rooting for them and you're devastated when things don't go their way. And I think that's that's a much, much more updated look on the franchise. Well, and I think that's always been one of my biggest problems with trying to approach the Lord of the Rings is that the characters don't feel quite real, I guess is the best way to put it. Um, and so I'm, I'm a character guy. Um, when, you know, I, I prefer like having really, you know, characters that feel drawn from life to a certain extent. Um, and then, and then you can put them in these fantastical situations and their reactions have to be real and relatable. And then I can get into, a, you know, a given story. Um, I like the Hobbit, uh, the books, the book the Hobbit a whole lot better than the Lord of the Rings books. I'm a big, big fan of the Hobbit. You can tell that Tolkien was writing. It's for much more audience. character. It's much more character driven. The Hobbit and 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 much I think simpler in in some ways. Yes. I think it was very much yes. like a like a young adult kind of book, um, something that was aimed at a much younger audience. And I think the Lord of the Rings was, and I think it works in its favor, which is why. Uh, the, the Hobbit movies in particular were such a disappointment for me because I don't think they clicked in the way the, 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 the book did. And I think it needed somebody else. I, I think that The Hobbit feels different from The Lord of the Rings. And so having Peter Jackson come back and, and do those was not a good move. It needed to feel different. Plus, I, I, you said that you know Peter Jackson's had a chokehold on this franchise. I think vice versa is true as well. I get the impression sometimes, especially when you see some of the behind-the-scenes footage of the Hobbit movies that I think that I think that this franchise has had a chokehold on Peter Jackson. And I don't think, I don't think he had any intention of coming back and doing the Hobbit and was kind of strong armed into it. They just threw so much money at him that he couldn't say no, but he just, he just, when you look at the behind the scenes footage of the original trilogy of Lord of the Rings, and then you see the Hobbit trilogy footage behind the scenes, he just looks tired, man. Like he just looks like he's, he's about had it. All right, that wraps up Nerd News. What are you most excited about um, from Netflix's catalog? And what is your thoughts on James Earl Jones hanging it up? But not really, I guess. Um, when we come back from this, our first break, Drew Edwards makes his spectacular return. Welcome back to this week's big time segment. You know it as our byword. And we are joined by an illustrious returning guest. You uh, will remember Drew Edwards. He is the writer-creator of Halloween Man and Lucy Chaplin's Science Starlet. He's uh, a cast member on the Castle of Horror podcast, Ringo Awards nominee, Best of Austin winner, Drew Edwards. Thank you so much for coming back, Drew. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. So, Drew, you reached out and said that you had some big news that you wanted to share with us. What is bringing you back to the Byword today? Well, uh, as people who have followed uh, my career and followed Halloween Man for the last decade, uh, they'll know that we have we have had a home, a happy home for the most part, at uh, at Comixology, which is uh, a you know the digital platform on a lot of respects. 
Um, but other, uh, you know, people who follow comic book industry news will, will also know that uh, they were merged with Amazon Kindle last uh, last October. Um, the, that, oh, the debacle when they updated that. Oh, my God. Yes. Uh, and, you know, without spending too much time, you know, on that, uh, you know, the ins and outs of that, just saying that that created a lot of stresses in my life. Um, so I have spent the the better part of a year uh, reaching out to different publishers and different digital platforms and things like that, and just kind of putting out the the, the that it needs to be known that I am looking for a new a new home for for my my characters. Uh, you know, it li- li- ended in some interesting conversations. You know, I talked to. Some of the, the the biggest publishers in the comic book industry, but ultimately, the the people that I was most impressed with is a a digital startup uh, called Global Comics. That's comics with an X. Um, I wasn't necessarily trying to stay in the digital wing of the comic book industry, but they they have offered me you know the most creative freedom the you know the the most uh sort of bang for for your buck and because of this uh what is going to be happening it, probably by the time this podcast is out uh is you can go to global comics you can search halloween man comics and you will be able to find the entire back catalog of halloween man available on global comics for free yeah, I, I I am a big believer in comic outreach. Uh, one of the things that I do at conventions is I when I print something up, I, I don't print single issues. I print up an entire storyline uh, because I know people uh, people you know they like to read it that way. They they you know especially if they're trying something new, they they want to be able to to dig in and get a complete story. So this is kind of going to be the digital version of that like if you have never read halloween man uh this is your chance to dive in and really look at this this universe of characters and you can do it while also trying out this amazing new digital platform that has a heavy focus on indies and so and so in in talking before we hit the record button uh global comics is an entity that's very much still in its infancy i think you said it was about a year old so yeah um what is your experience with that what can you tell us about the platform well it's it's an interesting combination because in a lot of respects it's it's you know it's it's a place you can go and read comics and you can read them either in a uh you know, guided format, similar to guided view on Comixology, or you can download PDFs and there's, you know, thousands of options, you know, from, from stuff as mainstream as, as Top Cow and Valiant to, you know, a lot of, you know, Japanese manga to, to people who are small press. So you have all these options, but there's this also this element of social media to it because it's also a way for fans to interact with creators. Uh, you, every uh, publisher has, uh, you know, a comment section on the issues that they put up. So 
they can you know interact with their fans fans can you know leave questions about the the issues right there on the issue uh and you know it's it's designed also that you can you can share as easy as possible uh through other social media platforms like you know even things like discord and stuff like that so it's this this combination you know it's sort of like if comiXology and facebook had a baby and you know i i was i was really impressed with the forward thinkingness of this like that that is why you know of all the people that i talked to i was like i want to get in with these guys because i you know it was the chance that a get on the ground floor of something and B, you know, this to me is the next evolution of what digital comics are because, you know, it's now not just a way, a place where your comic books can live, you know, on on like some sort of digital cloud. It's a, a new way for for fan and uh, you know creator interaction, uh, you know, which we sort sort of started to evolve in the the pandemic. But you know, these guys have really taken that that frame of thought and really just you know put it together in a a elegant fashion and it's you know because i know some of what's down on the pipeline like like for example they're going to have a new app in 2023 um you know it's 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 interesting to to see the evolution of that and i think you know when people go check this out they're going to be like wow you know this this really opens up my whole world uh, as far as my comics fandom but it also gives you the chance to to really dig into you know small press creators indie creators because that's right now where their focus is you know even with comicsology as as good as they were with indie comics for quite a while uh they still always gave you know, a little bit more prevalence to, to Marvel, DC, and Image, where, you know, right now that's not so much the case with, with Global. Like, they're, they're really, you know, they're really pushing indies. It, it, it was really cool just in doing the very, very preliminary homework in, in prep for this episode. Um, longtime listeners of our podcast will remember that Jason Douglas, uh, the writer of Parallel, uh, from Source Point Press uh, was our very first creator interview over two years ago, and so seeing Source Point Press being involved in global comics, in addition to as as the names that you mentioned, Top Cow and and Valiant, was really really cool. Um, something I wanted to to point on uh, that you had talked about was was creator rights, and that's a real hot and button issue in in comic books as a medium uh you know when you have uh you know screen adaptations um creators rights even with novelization you know with um you, you know certain star wars extended universe authors coming out I'm, I'm i'm blanking on names but like creators rights is a real hot button issue right now how how do you think global comics is taking that as an initiative well Again, I don't want to. I don't want to turn this into a into a you know dis, dissing the dirt on the la, you know the last few years of what it was like to work with Comicsology, but I, I you know with my initial conversations with them about I did with the Global Comics guys, I did have to ask them. I was like, well, 
what is what is censorship going to be like on this? And he was like, well, we, we you know, we, we watch stuff that goes up, obviously, and we have a rating, an internal rating system and everything. And you can flag stuff as not safe for work as well. But I did see that. I did see that on some of your on your uh submissions there so yeah. yeah but they they also said you know we, we we will treat you like an adult and um you know we will you know we're not gonna tell you no you can't put out this comic under most circumstances and because i was i've dealt with some very absurd um censorship uh, like for, you know, an example I can give is, uh, there was a Lucy comic that came out, uh, a, a few years ago and we had, uh, you know, a, you know, a, a sexy looking outfit on it, but like she was still more covered than, you know, even Wonder Woman is, um, but because, you know, she's a plus size woman, um, and the way she's built, uh, they, I immediately, they, I was told that they were going to have to bump it up and on the age rating and, you know, I did it. I'm a team player, you know, like, and I, I don't want, definitely don't want to make people feel uncomfortable, but I also kind of feel like that that was a bit absurd and also, you know, fat phobic, you know, fear of, of women's bodies, whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, a bit strange to me. And, you know, I've even had issues with that when I'm posting my stuff on certain social media platforms that if I, I post a picture of Lucy, I, that I know if it was a less buxom, you know, not plus sized woman, I wouldn't be getting flagged for stuff because, you know, like Black Canary can run around in basically a, dom a dominatrix outfit, but because she's built like a Victoria's Secret model, it's it's not quote unquote fetish, you know, artwork. Um, so that was that was like a you know something that I was very vocal in talking to these guys about. I told them about those experiences, and they were like, "Look, you know, this is your artistic vision. You are on the same page with us." You know, we want to be good partners. Um, and plus, you know, they had seen the comic and they 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 knew what I was going for and that that I'm not just randomly putting out, you know, smut or whatever. So um, that that was a nice feeling, um, you know, that, that, that uh, you know, I wasn't going to have to deal with a lot of bureaucratic red tape and that the control was also put back into, into my hands, you know, another, another nice thing about global, and this is away from the, the censorship issue, but I select my release dates, comiXology with dealing with them. They, they were the one that, that would always like, I would submit a comic and then they would, you know, either they would come to me and they would be like, we have this date. Can you fill a comic in there? Or I would submit something and they would say, okay, we're going to release it this day. Whereas like with global, I literally am the one that, you know, inputs the comic and I decide then and there, this is going to be released when I want it. And that gives me more time to think about like how I'm going to promote something, um, you know, how I'm going to, uh, you know, get the word out about it 
Um, and there's also real time analytics on it. Like I, for the, the, there's only a few comics that are up there because again, I'm, I'm putting up a lot of back catalog right now and we're in late September, but the ones that are up there, I can go on there and I can tell you how many people have, have read it so far because right. Yeah. And whereas like with comiXology, I would have to wait three, four months to get the, that information. So there's just a lot of stuff about the way this is run that is sort of putting the control back into the creator's hands and giving you the information that you need uh, quicker, better. And that's all very empowering. You know, so many, so much of the time in publishing uh, you, you as a creator are, are kind of left at the whims of the, the people that are putting out your stuff and because you don't want to bite the hand that feeds you, you keep your mouth shut. But you know, th this is, has a very pro creator, you know, sort of liberal minded attitude about giving the, the, the creator a lot of control. And, and it's really cool. Like it's a very friendly interface, very user friendly. Um, and you mentioned the analytics and it's like the nerds that we are like, even, you know, as a spectator, um, I've recently, I just created in prep for the episode, uh, a byword account on there, but I can even see those, those analytics and I can see how many people have viewed the, the Halloween man comics. And that's just really cool from like a number crunching nerd kind of aspect, you know? Well, and that stuff is important because, you know, when you're doing, you know, small press, indie, whatever you want to call it, you know, that every reader counts. And, um, you know, I was part of Comixology Unlimited. And um, the thing that I found frustrating about that is I didn't know how many individual readers I was getting. I just knew how many uh, times something was read. Whereas this will tell me, like, if I want to know if it's one person reading the book 20 times or if it's, you know, 20 different people, um, I'm, I'm going to know because I can get that information and I can get that information today if I want it. And again, just very empowering. That's the sort of stuff that impressed me because, you know, I've been doing this 22 years. I've been around the block. I've dealt with big publishers. I've dealt with small publishers and, you know, these guys impress the hell out of me. Like I'm, I'm glad to be you know, partnering up with them because they're people that believe in the future of comics and that comics are for everybody, um, which is nice and, you know, refreshing. And, you know, because there's so much doom and gloom. If you get, get on the Twitter, like, you you know, the Twitter, I sound like such an old The man, Twitter. Right? The Twitter. <laughs> when you get on the Twitter. That, was, um, that, was, uh, that, that reminds me of the, I think it was uh, the proposal Betty White said that. Lord Yeah. <laughs> R.I.P. Betty White. Um, but yeah, if you jump on social media, you'll see probably dozens of people like, oh, the comic book industry is going to die. And let me tell you, the comic book industry has been supposedly dying since the 90s. Right. So, like, <laughs> if this is a death, it is a slow, agonizing death. So it's it's kind of nice to deal with people that are they're almost like futurists about comics and they're like no, no no we think comics have a have a future and you know we're gonna we're gonna be a part of crafting that 
Yeah, and it it really, you know, looking at this data and everything, it, it reminds me of how I look at like our 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 host, our podcast host, Podbean, is I have the app and I look at our data, I look at our download numbers, I look at where we're downloaded around the world, just as the geographical social studies nerd that I am. It's just like, you know, and you take that in and you formulate that, you see what you know, podcast platform is getting us the most traffic and you just formulate that. And so uh, I can imagine as a creator, um, getting that information is, is so paramount to, you know, your future endeavors and where you want to go from here. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it, it tells me what people are, you know, what they're, what they're reading the most is, you know, and I can know, uh, almost as soon as something comes out, whether or not it's, it's a hit or a bomb, um, or something in between. Most things are something in between, but, um, <laughs> you know, and, and again, the fact that I have all my stuff up there and it's going to, well, I will have all my stuff up there and it's all going to be for free. This is encouraging you not only to try out my comics, but also to try out this platform, which I, I believe if, if you can't tell by the level of enthusiasm that I'm projecting here, I very wholeheartedly believe in what, what global comics is doing. And here sitting and looking at the website, they have global comics gold. I assume that's a subscription service for seven ninety nine. Yes. First, not first month I'm being advertised as one ninety nine. So that's something you want to probably want to get up on the ground level for. Yes. You know, again, I, I am happy. I'm going to, I, I am, just happy as a pig in mud to to be on the on the the ground floor with this. I think that this is going to be an amazing evolution of di- digital comics. All right, we've tapped dance around this, but some of our listeners may need a brief refresher. What's the elevator pitch for Halloween Man? So Halloween Man is best described as the weird adventures of a zombie superhero and his sexy mad scientist girlfriend as they battle everything from vegetarian vampires, a Loch Ness monster, <laughs> uh, steampunk mummy pirates, the invisible man. Uh, we even have a Christmas special. Um, it's very quirky. I, I, I often say it's a little bit Evil Dead 2 and a little bit Fantastic Four. So, uh, you know, if, if you, you always wish if you, you're a big silver age fan, but you always wish that, that the main character ate the bad guys, you know, this is the comic for you. So if memory serves, Lucy Chaplin is a very personal character for you. We had, uh, I think I called it a three headed monster in our last visit. Um, we didn't get to talk about her near enough. Uh, Dave and I are both very big proponents of strong female characters and we are not threatened. We are not emasculated by them in any form or fashion. So tell us all about Lucy. So Lucy Chaplin, uh, science starlet is Halloween, the, the aforementioned sexy mad scientist girlfriend, although like she's, she's not so much mad. I would say she's more of a, a doc savage, uh, Reed Richards, but but uh, in a a gothy burlesque dancer's body, um, you know she's not crazed, but she is the smartest woman in the world, a uh, smartest person in her world, really. Point of fact, uh, she is a champion powerlifter. Uh, she is a plus size model, and she is a uh, billionaire philanthropist and a. Uh, polymath genius. So, 
Uh, she's she's super intelligent and she's good at everything. So this character has existed in the Halloween Man comics since the very beginning, but I always envisioned the character as a a plus size woman. And for whatever reason, again, this is this almost too much backstory to go into at this point. But for whatever reason, I had a very difficult time getting artists to to draw her like that. So about, I want to say seven years ago, we did a storyline called Eye of the Beholder, uh, which will be available on Global Comics very soon. Um, and it's... Uh, it, it, remodeled lucy and it made it character development that she she looked like how i envisioned her now uh the other part of lucy that is very personal um lucy is very much uh taken from my wife uh jamie who is a jamie barr who is a musician uh, she's in her own band, Danger Cakes. She also has is in a queer grass band called Brand New Key. Um, she is also the executive director of Girls Rock Austin, which is a nonprofit that is dedicated to empowering girls, trans, and non-binary youth. Um, so, you know, she's she's a polymath in her own way. Like, Jane, what 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 is what is amazing about Jamie is that if if you can lay out a skill and say you need to learn this for some reason, ninety nine percent of the time she can she can do that. And um, I did not initially um, I did not initially say like, hey, artist, draw Lucy like uh, Jamie. Actually, a good friend of mine who has been an off and on artist on Halloween Man is is the one that the, my friend Terry Parr is actually the initially the, the artist was like, well, I'm just going to draw her looking like Jamie because like Jamie has this great sort of pinup inspired fat sense of fashion. And so a lot of the times when we were looking for an outfit for Lucy, I would just say, draw this dress, you know, draw, draw this outfit. And, you know, Terry was just like, well, I'm just going to draw Jamie because Jamie has a good look for this character. And, uh, you know, I was like, you know what, you know, I, I was already at the point where I was using, you know, sort of Jamie-isms to inspire Lucy's dialogue. And Jamie is very much my muse when it comes to that character. Um, so now in this, this very weird, like, art becoming life, life becoming art kind of thing, you know, Jamie now goes to conventions. She'll she will with me. She will cosplay as the character. Um, she she actually just voiced it at our, on our Indiegogo video for for the crowdfund that we just did. Jamie just voiced the character for the very first time. The character has had you know audible dialogue, and so she's she's had to to you know kind of. The, the character has in her have like grown into this world together and the character became so popular. We, we started giving her her own spinoffs. You know, we did, did an initial one, I believe in 2015, we did a follow-up called Hellhole, which was about werewolf bikers a couple of years after that. And then just last year we did a, a crossover with Terry Parr's comic, a robicide. And there's another another Lucy comic in in the works as as 
you know, we record this interview because the character is hands down the most popular character in the comic. <laughs> that that sound that you hear, listeners, is the collective craniums of the incel army's heads explaining. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so, so, Drew, I've got you here as another horror expert uh, in Dave's absence. I'm going to sidetrack you for a second. This episode is going to be airing in October, right in the thick of spooky season. So it's perfectly lined up in our in in our lineup here um one of our shows claims to fame is nerd nightmare a segment where dave our resident horror expert tortures myself the horror noob with watching horror classics for the first time so last week it was a double feature with the original child's play and hellraiser do you have any memories surrounding those two films um i'm a big fan of both of those fans films probably more hellraiser than child's play but i am a reasonably big chucky fan um i love clive barker i think clive barker um has an imagination like no other uh when it comes to designing monsters um his are you can you can always tell a clive barker monster from from anyone else's because there's going to be that element of uh shall we say kink to it um and and hellraiser you might one one might say that (laughs) yes uh hellraiser is probably the purest distillation of that my memory of hellraiser actually because i get my love of the horror genre from my father um that that you know we we don't have a whole lot in common but we both like scary movies and um when i was a kid uh we my 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 twin and i we absolutely wanted to 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 rent hellraiser and my mom told me under no circumstances <laughs> we're we're we going to rent hellraiser so we can't imagine over... i can't imagine where she got that inclination yeah <laughs> you know um so we 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 went over her head and we rented it with my dad cuz my dad wanted to watch it and um and you know it my dad was a is a good you know was a good is a good church going man i guess but like he his favorite genre of horror films are like like anything vaguely satanic like the omen or the exorcist he's there so like he heard he heard that there was hell in the title you're like we're watching this so that's that's how i saw hellraiser um probably too young to see it um although i often say you know anytime it comes up i'm like well i didn't turn into like a criminal or anything i just i just became a comic book writer you know like i'm just i i if if anything is is weird i'm just a little bit too preoccupied with monsters but um you know so I, i the hellraiser franchise is is one that i'm very very fond of although i (laughs) you you know you not having seen a whole lot of horror films that's that's a that's a rough inoculation you know (laughs) as it as a psychology nerd like I'm, i'm putting two and two together there's a reason that like Catholics, Dave is going to love this as a Catholic, you know, in the editing booth, but like, there's a reason that Catholics have like the corner market on like horror films. Like yeah. there's some, there's, there's a definite, uh, you know, lineation here with uh suppressed 
some things <laughs> when it comes to religious behavior and kink and horror. I'm I'm just putting two and two together. I'm using my Columbo skills. Not <laughs> not wrong. And um, you know, Hellraiser's good for that. Um, as far as child's play goes. I don't remember when I first saw it, but I do have a weird memory of of being on the the bus when I was a kid and some some kids sitting ahead of me in the bus um talking about it cuz they had seen it and I didn't know what it was, but the kid in, that was talking about it had a speech impediment. So when he was saying doll it sounded like he was saying dog. And so like for like about six months or so, or however much it was in little kid time, I thought Chucky was a dog that had been, had the spirit <laughs> of a, a serial killer um, put inside of it. Um, so imagine my surprise when I did finally see child's play and it was a movie about a killer doll that First movie is kind of an underrated film, in my opinion. I think it's it's fairly suspenseful. Um, I don't know what you thought about it, but uh, you know, it's 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 Chucky's definitely uh, an, an unusual movie star, so to speak. Well, I had a very complicated experience with Chucky as a whole. My middle name is Charles, and so my dad oh. sometimes calls me Charlie or Chucky. Um, I had one of those My Buddy dolls, and so my mom was like, I remember growing up, my mom was like, that looks just like Chucky. So that gave me all the more reason, one, to chuck that toy across the room, two, to stay far, far away from the movie, even with my previous inclination uh, against horror films. Um but yeah, so that was very interesting to revisit. One big observation, Dave and I are both huge Trekkers. And so like the Star Trek connection of the lead actress, and I'm blanking on her name right now, is oh, being geez. in the um, the mom being uh, in the, the whale Star Trek film, You're one of my right. all-time favorites. Yeah. And then uh, Garrick, a simple tailor, being the lead actor in Hellraiser was really cool to see. It's, 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 you know, that, that genre, uh, you know, sci-fi and horror, horror tend to share a lot of actors. Bleeding lines. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, my other, think my other relationship with child's play, you know, speaking of, of people who are known with, with, for being in genre stuff, isn't with the original. I it's, it's with Bride of Chucky because I have a big long-standing crush on jennifer tilly so that's i i had a crush on her when there was some random movie in the 90s where like the kids like trapped their parents in the basement because they were didn't want them to get divorced or something yeah so i remember her from that movie yeah see i i i you know i had seen her in other things but there's the i don't you you probably i'm assuming you have not seen bride of chucky i have not there is an opening sequence. This is her before she gets turned into a doll, mind you. Um, there's an opening sequence where she gets the remains. She she breaks into a police evidence locks up and gets the remains of Chucky out of it. But she's wearing this 
very form-fitting latex <laughs> dress that's um, like a little impractical for breaking and entering, but, you know, we'll let it slide. And, um, you know, what can I say? I have a type. So, like, I, 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 I was pretty instantly smitten and continue to be so to this day with, with Jennifer Tilly. But uh, so that's, I guess my other connection to child's play. It's, it's funny that you say that, but like the two years of this experience, you know, I've seen some of the seminal classics, but now that you mention that it makes me think of how much of a super fan I am as weird as it may seem of what we do in the shadows. And so now um, seeing Natasha Demistro, uh, Demetro as, as in the doll form <laughs> as Nadia, that's bringing it back full circle for me. Uh, you know, I, I, I can't help but think that, that they were definitely inspired by right. um, by Child's Play and, and Chucky and Bride of Chucky. Um, you know, I think that's the thing that's fascinating about those movies, especially as they go go on, is right. that... Uh, you have this this character that has ba- essentially b- become a movie star who is an animatronic doll, right? And right. when when he's on screen, you know he definitely commands your presence. And by the time Bride of Chucky came around, you know they they had given any, up any pretense of of any of the human characters being the star of the movie. Like Chucky is the star of that movie, and I find that very interesting about the way we can sort of imbue um living qualities onto something that is essentially a special effect and i it's almost like we've jumped the shark uh something along the lines of like the kaiju films of like godzilla is like i remember my biggest uh, dave and i both our biggest criticism of godzilla versus kong was like shut up about these humans we don't care about them (laughs) yeah yeah and you know, I mean, you know, of course, there's the more wholesome versions of that where you have like things like the Muppets, and and you know, but but you know, you, as a species, it's it's fascinating that we can we can dream up these characters and we we create them, you know, out of rubber and latex and anima, you know, anim, excuse me, animatronics or you know, digitally on a computer. But we will imbue them with enough life that where we will, we will, you know, I bet you there's a ton of people that would say Godzilla is their favorite movie star. I mean, oh, for sure. Yeah. Like it's, it's, and he is like Godzilla uh, next to James Bond. Godzilla has had more sequels than, than any other film character. More connected universes even. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean he was he was doing the shared universe thing back in the fifties and sixties. That's that's way out of Marvel. So uh, you know, I I I you know, not to get too pretentious about it, but you know, that's one of the things I, I love about the human race is our capacity for storytelling and our capacity to to love characters. I've gone very far afield of horror films at this point. (laughs) Okay. So that's the past. We're now looking ahead this week's nightmare. I haven't watched it yet as of the time of the, uh, this big talk recording, but we're, I'm, I'm watching the original scream for the first time. What is your advice or insight? That's a good movie. A very good movie. (laughs) I don't think it's going to be, as potentially traumatizing as Hellraiser or Child's Play. Um, it's funny 
for one. Um, it's it's got a, a wit about it. The opening sequence is the scariest part. I don't want to spoil too much about it, but um, if you want to really get yourself spooked, the right way to do it is to make yourself a big bowl of popcorn, wait till nighttime, get into a room with all the lights off, eat your popcorn, and you know, make sure none of your social media, you know, no computers, no phones, like just, just watch it in one go. And I think that's the, the, it's a perfect Halloween time movie. It's, it's very, it's very creepy, but it's, you know, when I, when I watch scary movies around um, Halloween, you know, and I, I would say scream is this kind of movie. I tend to want to watch the fun, scary movies. Like, like I think of something like te- the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, like that's a great film, but you sort of feel like you need to take a shower after you're done with it. Like it's very grody. Scream is not like that. Scream is very fun. Um, it's it's the epitome of a '90s teen slasher, and I think you're gonna have a good time watching it. It is scary, but it's not definitely not the same kind of scary as as Hellraiser, which is just sort of in your face and extremely visceral. I'm going to, I'm going to save Dave's bleep button, but as I said last week, it it's not scary. It was just bleep and gross. It is, it is, <laughs> it is definitely that, um, <laughs> you know, it's, it, I always say that, that um, hell, Hellraiser, it, it, there's the phrase hell bent for leather. Hellraiser is hell bent for leather in the most literal sense of the word. Uh, <laughs> Little literal sense of the term, I should say. All right, let's get back on track. In addition to the global comics news uh, and your partnership, are there any future projects that you can tease at the moment? Well, um, as far as what's directly coming up, uh, the the thing that I was on the show last time, uh, the the Halloween Man meets the Latex Avenger issue, is going to be part of this promotion that I've been talking about. So you'll be able to read what we were what we were talking about, uh, you know, last time I was on the show. But also, um, there is going to be Halloween Man: The Broken Man, which is a story that I was able to start on Comixology before all the stuff went awry. And uh, now I'm going to be able to complete it. And the entire thing is going to be up there. And it is a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde story. Uh, it is, uh, And I, I, I always say, I want to touch on all the classic monster tropes in Halloween, man. So like, I, I've really put a lot of effort into this story and it's been frustrating to me that I haven't been able to finish it. Um, and global comics is allowing me to do that and you will be able to read it for free. So you can see what all the hype is about. All righty then. Drew Edwards, writer-creator of Halloween Man, Lucy Chaplin, science starlet. Thank you so much for your time, sir. Where can we all go to support you and your work? Well, uh, first of all, you should go to Global Comics. That's with an I-X dot com and search Halloween Man comics. You can find the Lucy comics and all the different Halloween Man comics 
through that right now. Uh, as of this recording, uh, they're not all up there, but there is quite a few things that are up there. And as we get into the Halloween season, that catalog is just going to grow and grow and grow and grow until you have, like, you could spend days reading nothing but Halloween Man Universe stuff. Uh, if you want to uh, find me on social media, on Instagram, I am Drew underscore Halloween. On Twitter, I am... Uh, Halloween man com C O M all lowercase all one word. And if you want to just go to my website, uh, we just relaunched a Halloween man website. Uh, that's uh, Halloweenman.com. It'll uh, take you right there. It'll keep you aware of all the news and everything that's coming up down the Halloween man pri- pipeline. Thanks again, Drew. All the best to you, man. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right, thanks so much to Drew Edwards, and be sure to head to Global Comics, especially if you're an indie fan. In addition to Halloween Man Comics um, and Lucy Chaplin Comics, you're going to see a lot of great stuff from a lot of great indie publishers and indie creators. So if indie comics are your vibe, be sure to head to Global Comics and check that out. When we come back from this, our final break, uh, Nerd Nightmare resumes. All right, we are back here for Nerd Nightmare, and as the horror noob, I will gladly pass the baton to my horror aficionado and co-host, Dave. Nerd Nightmare. All right, so this week for Nerd Nightmare, uh, we are going to be talking about Scream, the original Scream from 1996. Um, which uh, was directed by Wes Craven, uh, a, we can say, horror royalty when it comes to uh, directing scary movies. Uh, it was released uh, on December 20th of 1996 and starred Nev Campbell, Courtney Cox, David Arquette, Skeet Urich, and Matthew Lillard, and had a sort of fake-out appearance by one Drew Barrymore. Uh, so in this movie, according... I'm going to read you the official logline here that I found on Google. Wes Craven reinvented and revitalized the slasher horror genre with this modern horror classic, which manages to be funny, clever, and scary as a fright-masked knife maniac stalks high school students in middle-class suburbia. Craven is happy to provide both tension and self-parody as the body count mounts, but the victims aren't always the ones you'd expect. Um, and we uh, did text a little bit about this, already, Chris, that this is definitely, um, you know, a kind of a self-parody in some ways. It's very meta. It's very aware that it is a slasher movie to the point where uh, even characters within the movie comment that they're trying to follow horror movie rules, so to speak. Um, So it's a different kind of slasher movie and a different approach to that, especially after something like Friday the 13th or Halloween. I'm very, very interested to hear your take on this one. Well, it was really it was really fascinating because it felt like almost like a time capsule of 1996. Like I felt transported back to that time. Um, I, I'd be almost I'd be almost interested to see. I know that they had a recent release, like how this takes place in an updated time. You know, with so much of like this being the early earliest stages of cell phone usage um you know they're pulling up cell phone records and cloning a cell phone and all of this stuff like 
what's the updated version of this? Because this movie felt very, very 1996. I mean, look no further than the cast. I mean, you have Nev Campbell coming off of Party of Five. You have, um, you know, Courtney Cox and David Arquette, I guess. Is this the movie where they met? Because I know that they were married for a, a good amount of time. Um, I, w- I want to say yes. I'm not 100%, but I want to say this is where they meant. Yeah. So it was a very interesting experience because I got 20 minutes in and then particularly the scene where they're sitting at the water fountain. I was just like, dude, is this a satire? Um, I think part of my initial reaction was skewed due to the fact that I did watch the like the first three scary movies, the parodies. And so like that opening scene in particular, I had seen with Carmen Electra being uh detopped um in i think it was the first or second scary movie i think it was the first one because the second one opens with the exorcist spoof um and the second one's probably the best scary movie um but yeah so that was that was an interesting kind of uh lens through which i watched this I, i i gotta be honest i think this of all the nerd nightmare films that we viewed it's the one that I'm most interested on following up to see where this franchise goes um, because it wasn't necessarily scary. I think the meta-ness of it all kind of enticed me. And the last 20 minutes of the film was just genius. Like the entire twist was just fantastic. Um, now I say again, what does that look like in 2022? So I'm interested to continue this journey, potentially. I don't know, because I wasn't really scared, but I was very, very intrigued. Okay, so that's really cool that you say that. I have I have so many so many comments here. So uh strap in. You ready? Yeah, let's go. <laughs> so I'm a big I'm a big, big fan of, of Wes Craven, generally speaking. Uh, people under the stairs, Nightmare on Elm Street, uh, you know, particularly the first one. Now, uh we've talked a little bit about the fact that the first Nightmare on Elm Street is trying to be pretty scary, and then after that it sort of slowly devolves into self-parody. Um but Craven came back um to make one more uh Friday uh, one more Nightmare on Elm Street, and it was called Wes Craven's New Nightmare. And what is fascinating about this is that it sort of um, feels a little bit like a fairy tale. Um, and it is not the usual Freddy Krueger. It tries to sort of return him to these scary roots. And it, in order to do that, Craven decides to take an extremely meta approach. So to me, um, Wes Craven's new nightmare is sort of the precursor of what would become Scream. Um, and in it, you have the actors that performed at the original Nightmare on Elm Street. Their lives are slowly becoming uh, turned topsy-turvy because the entity that is the real Freddy Krueger, not you know some child killer that was killed or, or something, but like a, a supernatural entity is slowly coming into the real world and is terrorizing them. So you basically have Wes Craven playing a version of, of himself in the movie. Heather Lang- Langenkamp is playing a version of herself in the movie. And these horrific things, which didn't really happen to them, obviously start happening. And so it's a very meta look at, at acting, um, at, at scary movies, at how... Being in a scary movie can affect your your life and people's obsession with scary movies. And and that meta approach then worked incredibly well. And he kind of followed that up eventually with with the first Scream, which is, as you mentioned, incredibly meta movie. Um, It's pretty suspenseful, I think. Um, I think the problem, of course, is, as you said, it's been parodied. It has such a huge cultural impact that it's been parodied about a trillion times. Um, 
So to transport you back for a second, when you see that opening scene, which uh, features Drew Barrymore, it's a very, very tense scene when you're not familiar with the parody of it. On top of that, Drew Barrymore was on the poster for this movie. So the general expectation as sort of the biggest name in the movie was that she was going to she was going to star. And then they killed her off in the opening sequence. And you're just kind of sitting there going, what the heck just happened? And at, And I think that's part of what makes the movie work is sort of these these genre inversions right like how often you know in in a in a halloween or a friday the 13th would a character say listen uh if this is a scary movie uh you cannot go in there because you are going to be dead you know like um that whole that whole bluntness and being able to take scenarios and kind of twist them around a little bit and then the ending as, as you mentioned which is fantastic i will say that uh we had a 2022 scream um it was um, a, a little different because it did not actually uh, have Wes Craven involved since he's since passed away. Um, and although it features some of the original characters, it is also sort of a passing of the torch to sort of a new generation. Um, and I have to say, I quite liked it. And some of the things that you bring up, like, you know, what, what does it look like with, you know, cell phones? There's a There's a great scene where a cell phone literally causes somebody's death um it's perfectly incorporated it tran it it tran oh it's 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 pretty heart-wrenching man it it uh it twists it very well around and updates it for modern times i will say also that the first three screen movies are technically supposed to be like a trilogy right um and then they came back and Wes craven made one more scream four that was trying to again play with audience expectations um and i liked it okay um, and now this most recent one, I think, was a really cool passing of the torch. So we're basically at like five screen movies right now. Um, but I, I, you know, if you want more of the same, uh, two and three, uh, and if you want to start want to start seeing them play with what Scream could mean in a more modern setting, then four and five are, are the ones you want to look at. The most recent one um, imp- impressed me more than I thought it would. It was very much directed with like a love towards Wes Craven and how he did things. And, and did a, a decent job of updating it. I'm a big fan of the Scream franchise because I've always enjoyed, you know, those 70s, 80s slashers movies that, you know, they're kind of starting to play with here and and kind of commenting on. So if you're really familiar with like the Halloween films and the Friday the 13th films, then so many moments of what they do in here um, really resonates. Which, which makes me wonder, Chris, what incarnation were you doing watching the scary movie parodies if you've never watched scary movies? Like... How how can you enjoy a parody of something where you've never watched the original? What were you thinking, dude? My, be- my <laughs> okay, best friend, but... my best friend in middle school, is like, you know, you're a little diminutive. Uh, that I'll, you know, remove in, in in the interest of keeping RPG rating. Uh, if you don't watch this with me, so peer pressure, completely, wholeheartedly. Um, and um, also, I was a, such a huge fan of the Waynes Brothers, and when I saw them attached, I was like, okay, yeah, I'm in. I'm watching this. Um, I will say that was this. Correct me if I'm wrong. I even remember this at the time. Was was MTV part of this production? 
Were they involved in that? I, on, I honest to God, don't remember. 96 was, uh, you know, 96, I'm still in Germany, man. So um, I probably would have not been too familiar with whatever in the world MTV was doing. I think part of the reason that kind of desensitized it for me and sterilized it, made it not scary, was the ridiculous bombastic music. <laughs> like, it would just be like this pastoral view of this sleepy town. And then it would be like this huge orchestral number that completely just takes you out of it. And it was really funny. Um uh jamie kennedy's character was hilarious um randy i think is his name is like as he's explaining the rules i think one of the interesting observations too is like it was it was meta even down to like the tropes of it all and like it was it was so it was so foreshadowed like intentionally that made it funny like you knew like the delay on the camera that they had in the living room at the party. You knew that was going to come to play into effect. Absolutely. And it was still, and it was still hilarious. Like it was part of it and like, it was great. So I think this, it straddled the line to where like, I'm like, is this, is this good? Like it was so like meta and it was so in your face with the, like the self parody and the, the self flagellation of it all. I was just like, is this is this a good movie? But then, like, so I was unsure for the first half. But then that second half, and you get the twist. It's it's just fantastic, and it's just. I, I will say the hardest part for me was seeing Matthew Lillard be a doucher um, because I love Matthew Lillard to the moon and back. Um, there's a particular video where he's at like some con or like fan expo, and like this little girl's like a huge fan of his, but she's crying because she's scared. Um, and he like sits down on the floor with her and uses the shaggy voice. And I'm not even like the biggest Scooby-Doo person, but I just love Matthew Lillard as a person. And so it was it was disorienting to see him play such a horrible, horrible person. And he did it so well. Though, I know. <laughs> oh, my God. He's so good. I think the world of him. Yeah, I, I would be very interested, in, perhaps in a future Nerd Nightmare or something, to do to do another Scream, or maybe even we do an episode where we just say, screw it, we're going to you know watch the rest of the Scream movies and just kind of talk about how they all come together. Because it's a very, very cool series. And even even when it doesn't perfectly click, it is still interesting. Like they're still they're still experimenting and messing around and trying to play with the formula of what you know made a slasher movie a slasher movie. And I always appreciate that. Um, so I'm a, I'm a fan of this whole series, and I'm I'm a massive fan of Wes Craven. So, um, and any time I get to see a Wes Craven movie is a good day. I think for me, I've been able. You know, it's only taken me two years, but I think I'm starting to diagnose what scares me, and I think it's the jump scares. Insidious was the most terrified I've been during this entire encounter, um, and I'm interested to see next week. We're looking at a quiet place. So we can kind of divorce ourselves from like these preconceived notions, the satire, the scary movie of it all. I've seen all that played out. I've seen enough in like memes and pop culture to know like the basics of A Quiet Place. But other than that, I'm going in pretty cold. So this should probably be terrifying. Well, I mean, you know, will us is it the scariest movie ever made? No, but it is it's a great movie as far as ratcheting up tension. It's a very tense movie. I think I think you're going to appreciate that. I really do recommend watching this one like with the lights out and you know, it's quiet in the house because it kind of captures that that vibe that the movie is going for really well. I have never been in a more quiet theater than I have been watching a quiet place. You could hear a pin drop in that theater. It was really cool. It was it was one of the most atmospheric 
um, movie, communal movie experiences I think I've had. My only problem is like when I watch these movies, like it'll get to that heightened suspense moment and then the kids will walk in like, Daddy, what you watching? Like, go away, go away. So I'm like, I'm not trying to traumatize <laughs> them. So I'm, I'm very much a just yourself, very much right? a dad. Yeah, 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 yeah. Just self-flagellation to bring that term back up. Yeah. <laughs> All right, that wraps up this week's nerd nightmare what are your thoughts on scream what's your relationship with it be sure to give us your reactions on the post um and uh, we thank you so much for listening um be sure to visit us next week as we look at um a quiet place and um be sure to give us a rating and review on your favorite podcasting platform hit that subscribe button you can find us on apple Podcasts, spotify Tune in radio or nerdbyword.com. And find us on social media because we love to hear from you. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at nerdbyword or individually at that nerd Dave and at that nerd Chris. And of course, we have a totally awesome link tree in our uh, bio where you can find uh, you know the easiest way to uh, subscribe to our podcast, uh, a link to our Discord, merch. If you want some pretty cool byword swag, uh, whatever you need, you can find it in our link tree. And be sure to go to Global Comics and support Drew and other cool indie creators. And as always, stay well and stay nerdy. The Nerd Byword is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez with additional drops composed by Joe Biondi. Our show art is by Ashery Design. Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available. Mm-hmm.